0: time and space. Everywhere and anywhere, every star that ever was. Where do you want to start? We've survived the Daleks' master plan, which, I'll be honest, got a bit heavy there towards the end, so (laughs) let's hope we have some more gentle, fun hijinks in the next (laughs) episode of Doctor Who, which I see is called The Massacre. I'm Ian. And I'm Mark. And welcome to
1: all of Time and Space. Let's waste no time, let's get up to speed with where we are in the story. The TARDIS lands in Paris on 19th August 1572. Driven by scientific curiosity, the doctor leaves Stephen to meet and exchange views with the apothecary Charles Preslan. Before he disappears, he warns Stephen to stay out of mischief, religion and politics. But in 16th century Paris, it is impossible to remain a mere observer, and Stephen soon finds himself involved with a group of Huguenots. The Protestant minority of France is being threatened by the Catholic hierarchy, and danger stalks the Paris streets. As Stephen tries to find his way back to the TARDIS, he discovers that one of the main persecutors of the Huguenots appears to be... The Doctor. Or is it? We'll find out after this.
0: (laughs) You see that? We've landed in the middle of the 16th century. Yes, and that was the very time.
2: What are you talking about? Yes, that strange brotherhood of apothecaries. Well ahead of their time. Now, what was the name of that man that lived in Paris? Uh... Uh Prisoner! Prisoner! That's the man. Yes, the most advanced man of them all. I must
0: try to get to see him. You're too
2: cautious, Nicholas.
0: The Catholics know of only one way to settle our differences. Times are difficult enough for us here. ...without you provoking further quarrels. I? Oh, can't be fair. Paris hates our kind. We'll do anything it can to provoke us.
2: You must control your temper, Gaston. It is imperative that we keep the peace at this time. We're in
0: Paris. Quite so, dear boy. Well, now, don't hit us dawdle. We must go in and change. Well, have you got the right clothes? you will be surprised what I've got in my wardrobe. And I want to turn over a few old papers. Yes, come along. There's no time to lose. Come along.
2: come along, come along,
1: come along. And welcome back. And I'm so pleased to say we've been joined by the legendary Mr. Brendan Jones, <laughs> Brandy Bongos himself.
3: <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you very Hi, much. Hi, Brendan. Hello. Thank you very much, and hello, dear what listeners. What a
1: pleasure to have you along.
3: Oh, uh, thank you. I'm. I'm. I'm very, very glad to be on. Um, because it's. It's been a couple of years since we did uh, Nerdology, I think. So yeah, well, yeah. we did a
1: Nintendo uh, episode. We'll have to do another one sometime. I really, I've got to get around to doing some more Nerdologies. We had uh, some chances on the last episode that went out. I don't know who they were, but um, <laughs> they stood in quite admirably.
0: Still haven't been paid for that, Cockrum. Not, <laughs> no, not quite no. Sure well, what's I'll.
1: Yeah, I'll give you uh, 33% of, uh, of what I get from the uh, the revenue of that Great. show.
0: Great, good. So I can start looking at yachts.
1: Um, <laughs> imaginary ones, yes.
3: Right. As they might say on Mystery Science Theatre 3000, toy boat, toy boat. <laughs> mm.
1: Anyway, enough of this shenanigans. Ian.
0: Yes, we can't go any further I'm afraid, Brendan, without subjecting you to the horror of the mind probe
3: No, not the mind probe
2: (laughs) Getting to know Who?
1: Getting to know all about Who?
0: Who? Wow. That was lovely. Wow. That that sounded so moist. Wonderful. (laughs) Um, To to fill you in, Brendan, obviously we we used to have a a really good quiz-based setup here, um, and the the jeopardy was that uh, if you got enough of the questions wrong, you'd be tossed into the time lash at the end of the show. Um, I'm guessing my my, uh, colleague Mark still hasn't repaired our lash, so we're unable to offer the full mm. perilous quiz experience yeah. and therefore Sorry. it's just a it's just a gentle chat really um how do you uh. feel about that
3: um yeah that sounds great i haven't had that many gentle chats while strapped to a table with a large probe above me but yeah sure let's go <laughs> you haven't
0: lived Oh my god! Mm. Okay, well, let's let's kick off a, a simple one to start with. Um, Brendan, what is your favourite console room?
3: Oh, I would have to say the um, the Mike Yardley 1983 to 1989 model console room, otherwise oh. known as the blinking mushroom of death.
0: Oh wow. What a good answer and what a what a classicist you clearly are. A scholar <laughs> and a gentleman. Um Yeah, I personally would go for the same, but all in black, because obviously I'm a I'm a a master fan and I, I quite like the Master's TARDIS. Um mm. but enough of that. Um question two. What's your favourite Dalek story of
3: all time? <sighs> the power of the Daleks. Oof. Why? Um, because for so much of it, it is structured to show off their intelligence. You look at something like Resurrection, which is still a very good story and a story I very much enjoy, and it's more about the, uh, the Daleks sort of shooting people and conniving, but just sort of telling off their subordinates and whatever. In The Power of the Daleks, they actually have to restrain themselves in order to get what they want. And the real thing that is the downfall of the humans in the story is they're infighting, and the Daleks just exploit that. And then at the end, they go on a rampage and shoot everyone. <laughs> I just think that it, sh- it shows them in such a good light. Um... And I think also it's something that the current era has picked up really well. The current era may have made some missteps here and there, but I think their two Dalek stories they've done so far really hark back to that 60s and David Whittaker interpretation of them.
0: Mm. Cool. Okay. A um, bit of a personal question, this, for reasons <laughs> that we may come to. But apart from mm-hmm. Doctor Who, what's your
3: favourite Russell T. Davis drama? Um, Okay, so confession time. Uh, I've never watched another Russell T. Davies drama (laughs) right the way through. (laughs) I've seen the first episode of Queer as Folk. I've seen the first episode of The Second Coming. And I've yet to watch It's a Sin. And um, Queer as Folk just didn't particularly resonate with me i think it was a bit too far removed and the american version even more so but i'm able to watch it and go you know this is landmark and important television um absolutely no reason why i haven't watched the second part of the second coming (laughs) and (laughs) in terms of it's a sin the reason i haven't watched that yet is uh my husband actually lived through the the 80s and um I've sort of mentioned to him that this drama exists. He's gone, oh, that's nice. And I think, okay, uh, uh, can, we, can we watch it? But I don't want to push it too much. But that's the one I'm mm. sort of the most interested in seeing because Russell's spoken about it and sort of said this is what he's wanted to make for the last 20 years. Um, so I, su- I suppose... In the tradition of us talking about a missing story today, I would have to nominate It's a Sin because it's the one that's the most mysterious and the one I'm most looking forward to.
0: <laughs> that's brilliant. Have you seen it, Ian? I watched it, so I made a terrible mistake on Friday. I Firstly, I flooded my bathroom. Then, Oops. I, then I got trapped outside in a, in a t-shirt and jeans in the middle of a thunderstorm.
2: Oh, and no. I got soaked
0: through. And and so I got home and I said, Right, I'm gonna avoid any more soaking disasters. I'm gonna stay in and just watch something. And I watched It's a Sin in one go on Friday night. Okay. And Did you get counselling after I well I was I was crying for so long that I completely flooded the bathroom all over again.
1: <laughs> I mean it is a phenomenal piece of work. Mm. And I mean Russell G. Davis Is a genius at really sticking the knife into the viewer and you get to care about these characters and you see them go through all sorts of awful things in this story. That's not to say there aren't humorous elements to it but yeah I had to watch it in segments just because it was so emotionally Harrowing, yes, and so to do it all in a one I think, is <laughs> not necessarily the best well, way to watch well,
0: it. No, I mean, so obviously, I you know, I watched Queer as Folk what, 20 years ago, I think that was now, wow. and um, uh, the, the the timey, jumpy thing that was quite recent, so hmm. I was quite confident that I could hack another RTD program but I mean this this really is a quantum leap for him as a writer it's mm, mm. its so much more powerful and, and superb, ph- yeah. phenomenally affecting so um, yeah I mean maybe don't maybe don't <laughs> 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 last question and, and this yes. again you, you may or may not have an answer for this I don't know how far your, your fandom extends but do you have a
3: favourite original Doctor Who novel Oh, okay Uh, I haven't read all that many of them I've been trying to read The New Adventures for several years and I've currently been stuck on the pit for about six months Um, (laughs) Oh my good lord (laughs) But uh, one that sort of sticks in my head that I read at the time of publication is I think it's by Justin Richards and it's an 8th Doctor novel called Demontage which Uh is a A rather wonderful one about um, things in paintings coming to life. Uh, I think it's the second novel featuring Fitz, so it's his first story um, sort of out in space. There's a wonderful assassin character in it. Um, Oh, you know, uh, resonance with this, I think. Uh, And yeah, I just... That's one I particularly remember. I think I also remember it being one of the very early ones where Paul McGann finally consented to have his face on the cover and they just (laughs) put three massive claw marks through it. And I I just remember thinking, well, no wonder he hasn't put his face on the covers before, if that's what you're going to do. This is a subtle dig that you've had to do 30 novels without his face on.
0: (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Well, I feel like we've all kind of got to know you a bit. I mean, I can't imagine there's anyone listening to this who doesn't already know you and your fine, fine work. But just in case that was the case, we've kind of introduced you, we've we've prodded you, we've probed you, we've found out a bit about you, and now, I suppose, it's time for a full-on massacre.
1: So we're coming into this off the back of the Dalek's master plan, which is... um... I mean, they have got similarities as much as there's an awful lot of death, but yeah, it's uh, it feels like a bit of a, um, a real handbrake turn from the previous story, uh, just to go straight into a, a dead straight historical. Is this one that you particularly remember enjoying watching when you did it for Flight Through Entirety?
3: Yeah. Uh- I really did. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. And it was one of a handful that I went in not knowing much about. uh, Because around the same time we were doing the very early Flight Through Entireties, um, my husband and I were also doing the great journey of life. You know, start at the unearthly child Mm -hmm. and don't stop until, in our case, it was death in heaven. Um, And... So, for this, we watched um, the Loose Cannon reconstruction, which is... Um, the mm. the second one is remarkably good, because, of course, the first one had about, you know, three photos. Yeah, no, <laughs> what they've managed to do with it is,
1: is very impressive. Yeah,
3: you could just put that out on DVD. I know there's rights issues, and that's why they don't. But, mm. um, yeah. yeah, so I came to it completely fresh. You know, I knew it was about a massacre, um, I mm. knew about that last scene, but I didn't know anything else about it, and I, we were both gripped throughout, mm. and it was an era of history neither of us knew much about.
1: Yeah, I must admit, I didn't really know an awful lot about that sort of uh, part of French history mm. going into it. What about you, Ian?
0: Uh, I... I didn't know much about that period of history either. So um, I was very keen to get to grips with it, but I don't think I succeeded. I watched um, the first and the fourth episode with the photographic reconstructions, but episodes two and three, for some reason, I watched the CGI, um, weird... Kind of computer graphics. It was it was like playing Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven on a black and white Xbox. I mean, it was just <laughs> <laughs> just. And of course, because those characters had, let's be charitable, very little um, in terms of looking like the the. the characters in the photographs in the other episodes i very mm. quickly realized that i had no idea what was going on or who was who <laughs> uh, or anything so i came away from it a
1: whole new spin on i point.
0: came away from it with rather more questions uh, than i had going into it and a weird spooky coincidence oh well now i'm intrigued do you yes want, do you want, well i do, because it it relates to something that happens right at the end of the story so i i wonder if we should maybe talk about all the, right, well, let's, let's do the French bit a pin of in the that story and then, and then we'll come back <laughs> yeah to the, okay all yeah. right
1: I mean just in terms of the the cast on this one I think it's really they knocked it out of the park I'm assuming Paddy Russell would have been the one responsible for for hiring the actors on this because that used to be how they did it back in the in the olden days so there's quite a few memorable names that crop up more than once in, in Doctor Who, we've got Leonard Sachs as the Admiral de Coligny. God, I've probably just completely mangled that. Uh, but he's also uh, Barussa, isn't he? In. Oh, God, which one's he in? Is it Arkham He's Pity? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got Andre Morel, who is, to my mind anyway, most famous for playing Quatermass. Really fantastic actor. And. I think just overall, just the quality of the. I mean, there were quite a few names there that I didn't really recognize. Was there a guy from? Sorry, going off a slight tangent here. Was there a guy from "To the Manor Born" in this, or did I imagine it?
3: No, you're quite right. Um, Michael Bilton, who is um, sort of the, the the manservant in "To the Manor Born," yeah, uh, plays yeah. Charles de Teligny, yeah, who is um. Works with the king's household, I believe. In this, yes, mm. yes, and he's mm. he's the one who brings the news in um, uh, later in the story that uh, the admiral has been shot, and you know the king goes off on a on a bit of a patty, understandably. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, in terms of
3: just the general
1: story, I mean, it's it's rather like I think J.R. Southall's describe some of the, uh, the better historicals as being sort of period dramas where your favourite characters have just been kind of dropped into it rather than being, uh, you know, a, a sci-fi epic. Mm. I think this falls into that category. I don't know how much you need to know about the, the political shenanigans going on at the time to really mm. enjoy it. I mean, the long and short of it is that the Catholics and the Huguenots or Protestants as they are over here... There was just a lot of enmity for, for many many years, from what I can gather lots of uh, wars and what have you and uh, they kind of broke brokered a piece and it all seems to be going quite swimmingly until the king decides to marry off, uh, I think it's his sister isn't it, to uh, a Huguenot prince and that's when it all kicks off.
0: Yes, it's very self-explanatory and it does give you kind of everything you need to know. But at the same time, that was that was too much for me. <laughs> and again, I think purely because I watched it, I should have watched all four episodes in one format or the other and it would probably have mm-hmm. flowed. But um, <laughs> yeah, I just it was a lot of people standing in stone buildings having conversations with each other. And I wrote about three notes during part one. I wrote, where are the Daleks? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote Is Preslan Engin from Deadly Assassin yep. and then I mm-hmm. wrote Is that Andred?
3: Yep
1: <laughs> Yes it is now, Yeah of course so, yeah. I got to mention When him he
0: turned up in Invasion of Time I, I never I've never quite got to the bottom of where it is I think I know that actor from He might have been a you know like a, a play school presenter or something when I was a kid in the you know very early 80s but I kind of yeah. recognised him when I saw him for the first time in Invasion of Time. But, uh, but yeah. in that story, I thought he was about I don't know twenty twenty five as an actor. Yeah, it's crazy, so isn't it? He'd have, he'd have had to have been a teenager to be in this, and I don't think he is. So he, his moisturising mm. regime is way ahead of its time. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Mm, mm.
1: makes you sick, doesn't it? <laughs> Not that Brendan's got anything to worry about. <laughs> Uh, and we have Eric Thompson as well. I mean, we mentioned him, Emma Thompson's dad. <gasps> I did he not of, know the uh, magic me. roundabout. Yeah, he played Yeah, he plays Gaston.
0: Which one was Gaston?
1: He's the um the guy if you watch if you remember watching the uh, <laughs> the Recon, he's the guy dressed in black who is the I have got to get this right. He's the one that's really pushing the Huguenot side to Act preemptively before oh, the, the hmm.
3: Catholics. Right. Wow. Yeah. 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 He's the one who pulls the sword on Stephen as well.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah
1: I yeah.
3: remember that bit. <laughs> that
0: was, that was, oh, this is terrible. We're normally really professional and we know what we're talking about. <laughs> and to, uh, and purely for one story, and I'm really sorry it's happened to you, Brendan, but you've got me in full. Oh, I remember that <laughs> bit.
3: Oh, no, but well, but, uh, it, it, yeah. Yeah. It is hard to keep track of the characters without um, the visual reference, Uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, for this one, uh, I listened to the narrated audio, Right, Mm -hmm. and if there were more than three people in a scene, I found myself sort of pausing after each scene and going, now... Okay, that's the Marshal Which of Tavan and yeah. Simon. Now, who's Simon again? <laughs> <laughs> Simon, kind his of...
0: name is Peter.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just kind of remembering the relationships to one another. Um, mm-hmm. all, also in the Tom Baker pre-reunion in this story uh, is Nicholas Muss actor David Weston, who would later play Biroc.
0: Good Oh
3: heavens. In, in
1: Warriors Gate. <laughs> oh, blimey. Is this... I mean, obviously, you're not going to recognise him because he looks like Lenny the Lion.
0: <laughs> is is yeah. this the most sort of but... star-studded Who story we've had so far? I feel like it is. I've, I feel like... Wow.
1: And you get two William Hartnells. I mean, that's... Mm. That's something that's always kind of confused me in terms of what the Jeff is going on there. What the I Jeff? Mean,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> I mean... you. At first, they're kind of leading you to believe, is it the Doctor? Because the Doctor conveniently disappears in order to go off and find Dr. Preslan. And then you don't see him again for a while. And then you have the Abbot of Amboise. So is is it the Doctor pretending to be the Abbot? And then it turns out it's not because he then, you know, spoilers, he gets bumped off. It's all, you know, it's, I guess it's adding to the intrigue. But it it all gets a bit confusing. Mm. or is it just me being incredibly dim?
3: No, I think I think with just the audio to go on um it is a bit confusing. And this this is one that I would love to see recovered not only because it's really good and because mm. this particular season is so underrepresented um in what we have in visual media. Um but just I think that the twisty-turny story gets in its own way a little bit. Mm. And having that having that visual absolutely helps. Like, remember when yeah. the enemy of the world came back and we went, oh, wow, oh, this God, is the good yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which you can't tell from episode three, which even Barry Letts said in his autobiography, one episode of this story survives, and it's the one where we made it cheaply so we could afford the helicopter
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like this is um it's it's obviously a, a, a classic tv and film trope where you have the villain also played by the same actor as plays your your heroic lead so the audience is primed for the kind of story where either it's the doctor impersonating the villain or it isn't, but they're gonna, there's going to be some kind of subterfuge and the Doctor's going to take his place yeah. and you, you kind mm. of know what you're in for. But you don't really get any kind of payoff at all. Um, and it just feels... Uh, and again, this is my, my very clumsy Luddite first viewing hot take of it feels like you're coming away with really not a lot.
3: In the um, in the novelisation... Uh... John Luca Rotti explicitly makes the abbot as we see him in the story is the doctor attempting to um, stop the assassination of Dick Coligny, but the oh. abbot is also a real person who then finds the doctor out and okay. that's the one who ends up in the gutter. But the part of the problem... That makes
1: a bit more narrative sense to me.
3: Yeah, yeah. But part of the problem was that's how John Luca Rotti sort of saw the program it's like Mm -hmm. you know the Doctor has to be involved in the plot etc Donald Tosh on the other hand kind of saw history as a tide you get swept up in Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if you discussed this on the show already with Dalek's master plan but Tosh and Wiles had a very specific view of what Doctor Who was and we see that for about three or four stories Um, Mm -hmm. and something that typifies their view of doctor who is that the doctor and his friends get sort of swept along rather than necessarily being proactive so you have two Uh very opposing views trying to make this story work um and yeah ian i see what you mean about you know you sort of come away going oh you know there's not much involvement there and it's funny um I'm sort of a bit known online for Black Orchid being my least favourite Doctor Who story <laughs> <laughs> because of the Doctor's lack of involvement, the Doctor's lack of judgment at the end of the story, and the fact that they don't do much with the double aspect of Nissa. Right, right. Hmm. And yet, you've got kind of sounds got very familiar. Some of the same ingredients in this story, but mm-hmm. this story is a ten out of ten for me. <laughs> okay
0: well that's I, very inconsistent and unfair I know, <laughs> poor I peter davison poor terence dudley
3: oh no wonder i'm strapped to this table but um <laughs> yeah we should have released
0: you after the mine probe but well, i just yeah, i you yeah. look quite you know good lying there
3: yeah in your little your little tardis hoodie so we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna keep you there yeah. Yeah. I, I should point out to the um to the gentle listener as 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 we record, I am of course in Australia, so it's it's in the morning here and it's in the winter, so I am totally in like um fleecy fleecy trousers and a Tardis, um, dressing <laughs> <down>. <laughs> Well, You know
0: what? It's the middle of summer here, and I've got the heating on. So I mean, yeah. it's very yeah. much uh you know traditional
3: British yeah. Yeah. summer. Yeah. I I yeah. do miss the British summer. I used to wear suits every day, um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because
0: yeah. I I read um on I believe it was called Wikipedia, this kind of thing online that oh, had yeah. lots of facts and stuff. That the novelization Lucarotti ultimately wrote for the massacre was based on like his first his set his set maybe his second draft before mm. Tosh should come at him to excise right. all that double play and make it much more of, as you say, this kind of swept along Uh, hands-off approach kind of story so what you've read there is obviously much closer to the original uh vision that lucro had for the story and would Mm. you say that the novelization was a more satisfying experience
3: the novelization gives it gives a bit more of what you expect and it's like puzzle pieces falling into place Whereas the TV version, I sort of like that it's uncompromising. You know, all the way through, Stephen, who has been involved in sort of Doctor Who, is looking at it like a Doctor Who character going, oh, okay, well, the Doctor's doing this impersonation. It's all part of a special plan. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the story, the Doctor says to him, history sometimes gives us a terrible shock. And so the program is saying, you know, sometimes. It's not a huge conspiracy or a big plan. Sometimes bad things just happen. Um, and so, as far
1: as Stephen's concerned, that seems to be happening quite a lot. Yes. Coming yeah. off the back of the Metallics Master Plan.
3: Absolutely.
1: And the Myth Makers as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Big Finish go and shove Tom Allen's character of Oliver Harper in there for a very good trilogy. But again, ends in tragedy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, between those two stories. Um, yeah, and I think the two versions complement each other, for me. Um, it's... I'll usually always come down on the side of the TV version, but it's Mm -hmm. like... Yeah, you've got two stories which take the same idea that the Doctor really is the Abbot, And one goes, no, we're probably not going to do that. And the other goes, no, 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 we're definitely going to do that. Because even in the TV version, the accepted fan wisdom for years is the reason the Doctor disappears from the plot is he's helping Presline get away. But mm. there's actually nothing in the TV version that confirms that. No. When the Doctor no. reappears, he just says, oh, I was unavoidably delayed.
1: Mm. Yeah, still very ambiguous, isn't it? Yeah,
3: so he absolutely could be the abbot. And I mm-hmm. think that was maybe Donald Tosh's concession of I'm not going to say he wasn't, you know? But yeah, I think I I just I sort of like the, the inevitability of the TV version. Mm-hmm. It's like no matter what you do, this is going to happen.
1: When you think about it, it's quite a dark subject for what is ostensibly still a children's TV show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it is, and obviously coming off the back of the... The absolute sacking of Troy, and then the, the you know, <laughs> the, the, the death <laughs> festival of the Daleks' master plan. Mm. This is our kind of third story in a row that, you know, if I'm a seven year old watching this, I, I I don't know if I want to watch this anymore. It's just it's mm. it's not fun. It's uh, not as though
1: you, you get uh, William Hartnell going, I, the Abbot of Amboise. <laughs> <laughs> In full Kevin Stoney mode. Which
0: would, I think, yeah. have elevated this to that next well, tier of yes. brilliance. Mm-hmm. But we are very much in in this kind of season three uh, sort of dark patch. It's like when Suede released Dogman Star, they'd gone really dark, you know, and it's something that I guess most narrative fiction goes through. Sooner or later, there'll be a series or a book in that series or whatever. That's just a little bit kind of meaner. And nastier, and 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 the stakes are higher, and and it yeah, it just it feels like Doctor Who's kind of without the kind of comfortable hand of Verity Lambert, it feels like we've just lurched into this kind of you know Wild West free for all where. Anything mm-hmm. can happen. I know, oh, we're not onto the gunfight no, yet. I, I was yet. just thinking that. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's literally coming up. Um, but we, <laughs> we are very much in this kind of, it's not a comfortable show anymore. And people yeah. do die. And here we are having this terrible run. Uh, not terrible in a bad way, they're great stories. This um, mm. really shocking run of really, really yeah. bleak Saturday evening family viewing.
1: Well, using your uh, dogman Star analogy, um, I found that to be an album where the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, I'm really not sure, because I really loved the first album so much. But on repeated listenings, it's become a firm favourite.
0: Well, it's, it's in my top one, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, maybe maybe if we revisit this at a later date, and maybe if you watch one yes, uh, recon or yes. the other, come then, down you know on we one might, one might get a One yeah. side of it or the other, yeah.
0: So, yeah, um, so this business with the sea beggar, that's the next thing I've got written Mm. down. Mm.
3: So who was the sea beggar?
1: That was the Admiral.
0: Admiral,
3: right. Mm. Yes. And that is an historical term for Mm. when the Dutch were asking for assistance from the French in the court. They were known as the sea beggars because they had this powerful navy, yet they had to ask the French for help. Right. yeah, um,
1: because they were having issues with the Spanish, weren't they? So they were hoping for help from the French to to step in, but events took a, a slightly
0: see. Uh, it's it's actually really quite layered, dense, and evocative, isn't it? And and hmm. had it been had it been done, you and I again, I've got this really sort of crass impulse to say if everyone had had a kind of appropriate accent then it might have felt... Be, no, because mm. it was all... Every single character was doing um, BBC Received Pronunciation with one notable exception, to whom we will come yes. later. Um, mm. it, it was very hard to kind of feel, oh, these guys are French. Oh, this is Paris. Oh, this guy's uh, Dutch. And if you'd know, if you had this kind of uh, gold member kind of accent, a smoking and pancake, <laughs> you know, I think... <laughs> And I know it's crass, and I know that's a, a, a terribly reductive way of looking at television, but I just feel as if we needed slightly
3: more to get more out of this story. Like, it wasn't until this time, uh, listening to the story, that I picked up that Nicholas Morse is meant to be German. Uh-huh. And it's, it is a very early line. I think the pub, uh, the, 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 the pub owner says something about, oh, the German gentleman... Right, and mm-hmm. again, Nicholas Morse is a historical figure. He was the Admiral de Coligny's secretary and right hand man, and he was German. but again, you sort of think, oh, you know he's a he's a Huguenot as well, and it's like well he's a he's a Dutch Protestant rather than a French Protestant in this case. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the you know the accents could have helped, but you know then you'd have mostly everyone there's always that danger French
1: of it turning into a low low though isn't there yeah, That's, true. you know we don't a- nobody wants
0: absolutely that absolutely right
3: that is that is the
0: risk and and that is possibly what would have happened but i just i still feel like we, there there was more um of that kind of mm-hmm. european flavour that that was lacking again just because everyone mm. was so hello good evening i am general <laughs> mr frenchy Oh hello, I'm Herman the German. Yes, <laughs> um, and they all clearly lived and worked in West London, so um, it was it was just I guess kind of a barrier for me, personally. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Apart from our uh, pseudo companion for this story, uh, who was Anne Chaplet. <laughs> <laughs> So she she was
0: going for I don't know it's kind of West Country West Country mixed with France again very yeah. Yeah. it was uh, yeah. you know sort of mummerset meets Hello Hello in that kind of, yeah oh I'm from I'm from down the village uh, oh, 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 oh.
1: what did we think yeah. of Annette Robertson did, did we like her
3: I re- I really like her and mm. the the thing is though with the accents um, you sort of. Listen to the rest of the cast and you listen to Annette Robinson It's like, oh, why is she doing that accent? Oh, because she's a servant exactly. <laughs> And servants get West Country accents Just ask Michael Bilton yes. later on um, It's a disgrace Yeah, But that being said, I really like her They are clearly mm. setting her up to be the new companion Before they they yeah. get the sort of fear of Katerina put into them um, mm. <laughs> And look, I I will... <laughs> i will die on this bloody airlock but katarina could have worked with less lazy writing as far as i'm concerned um like the moments where things have to be explained to katarina it's not this is how a door handle works yeah it's this is how a force field works which kids in the 60s would have had to understand Yeah. yeah and you know Anne is really a step in the right direction um no one ever has to explain scientific concepts to her, but she's clearly capable of deductive reasoning in that she overhears yeah. the thing about Vassie and realises mm. what that she knows means straight, away, straight yeah. away and go and runs away. She's not immediately trusting, she's not stupid, she's not naive. Um you know, she can track Stephen across town, kind of thing. She is mm-hmm. a proactive character. And I really like the way Annette Robinson plays her. You mm. know, she is scared, quite understandably, but she doesn't lose her smarts because of that. I really yeah. like Anne Shapley.
0: I- it's quite
1: refreshing for a 60s female character to get quite so much agency. I know we've had Barbara in the past, but we, we are sometimes in danger of sort of falling into the uh, the trope of the screaming woman who needs saving constantly. Well, I, I think especially I think she holds her own,
0: especially she? with a, a character who is kind of from a period in history where there is this kind of sense of they're just there to do the, you know, cooking or the, the washing or the screaming. Mm. Um mm. and I, I I really like your point there, Brenda, about the um ab- about the lazy writing and obviously you've got a very simple fix that they could have employed with Catherine they could have done with Anne where you you take that character and at the start of a second story, you indicate that some time has passed. And they've yeah. kind of been brought up to speed on how things work, mm. like they did, I guess, with Jamie. Um,
1: well, Ben made a point, didn't he, last time around in our um, second episode on Dalek's Master Plan. and He he was a big fan of Katarina, and he said that that character could have worked. And she shows that she can understand things like the whole... Where he mentioned about how she didn't know what tablets were, but by a later point in the story, she's explaining to the doctor that she's given Stephen the tablets and that she knows what they are, and she said
0: it with authority. Absolutely. And so,
1: yeah, I think uh, I think you, I think you're certainly on the right. I think track.
0: you've hit it firmly on the head by calling it lazy writing, because you know, <laughs> uh, any one of the three of us could could address these problems if we were script editing the show. Maybe well, we've got a certain amount of benefit of hindsight in our favour. Yeah, just a yeah, tad. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we've we've all probably had to address problems not you know mm. similar to that and, and overcome them. And there are so many ways as a writer of taking a character and without without changing or betraying that character, you can evolve them to where you need them to be and as you again as you pointed out we're we're 95 percent there they can understand tablets they can understand anything we still need an identification Mm -hmm. character as the tv audience at the time so we need someone to have a gravitron accelerator explained to us that might as well be (laughs) katarina it might as well be anne and i thought Mm -hmm. she was wonderful it was quite interesting on the um the the computer generated version that I watched, where she's very much this kind of Minx with this kind of Susie Sue black eyeshadow and, and this amazing kind of ironed hair. And she just looked like, oh my god, it's a sort of sex, <laughs> sexy Egyptian princess in in you know, in, in Paris. And then coming into part four, and you're confronted with a photograph of the actress, you're like. That's Well re- you have
1: to remember that, that your version was rendered on a PlayStation. Well yeah. One in I mean this this
0: was this was yeah. very much not the character I'd been looking forward to seeing in the <laughs> well not the flesh because photography. But mm. um mm. yeah, I thought, you know, resourceful, engaging, enjoyable, alluring, yeah. quirky would have been really a great good. companion. And I mm. sort of had this dim awareness that a new companion would be coming along who was going to be a sort of dark-haired woman with a funny accent. So I sort of blithely assumed that Anne was going to be Dodo because I'm, uh. I'm very silly. Now everyone listening thinks I'm a complete fool. Well. They already did, didn't they? They've, <laughs> if they've heard it before, they'll be wise to my shtick by now. <laughs> mm.
1: Oh, interesting factoid while well, we're on the subject of Annette Robertson. She, for a short time, was married to John Hurt.
0: Good gravy. Mm.
1: Huh.
3: and well, you- according
1: to that uh, Wikipedia that you were talking about
3: earlier. Oh. Wow. Wow. Um. That was before she told people they were the weakest link. No, that's not her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know we've all. That's the second pseudo companion we have who's been married to a doctor, because of course Jean yes. Marsh, yes, had been married to had been married to John pertley for a few years. Um, Indeed. You know, a thought just occurred to me that. Spoiler alert, just jumping slightly to the end of the story There is an implication that Dodo is related to Anne And that Anne somehow survived It's odd then that we get Annette Robertson as Anne Rather than Jackie Lane Exactly
0: mm. Yeah. That mm. was, again, I was expecting If not the same character, then certainly the same actress mm. Because why, why Why wouldn't you?
3: Jackie Lane was not Jenna to, Coleman Not to not
0: Jackie Lane, obviously
3: Jackie Lane was Jenna Coleman all the time. Now
0: that's a very different
3: uh, reading of the text and I'm going to (laughs) have to go back and study
0: it really quite carefully. (laughs) Mucky boy.
3: Now
1: as we record this particular episode, uh, it comes fairly close to the news that Jackie Lane sadly passed away. Mm. And I think... I could be wrong but I feel like she certainly got a bit of a reappraisal. I felt like there was an awful lot of love for her during the the 50th anniversary and I, it felt like the consensus was shifting a bit because I I do feel like she definitely got a bit of a uh, a tough time from some of the the fans. Mm. Not not things that were necessarily her fault either
0: i mean i am i'm led to believe that she's perhaps not the most fondly remembered of companions but i mean she's not adric wow so she can't have been that unpopular i'm really looking forward (laughs) to seeing her obviously i've never um encountered any of her stories so uh Mm. she's a a a completely unknown companion to me so uh, i am Mm. looking forward to watching that Off the back of her kind of five minutes at the end of part four, I think um, she seems to be a very different kind of companion while at the same time looking comfortingly like Susan, which is such a weird, Mm. creepy thing the doctor says. He's like, (laughs) don't you think
2: she looks like my granddaughter? Oh,
0: Oh, dear, we've crossed a line here.
3: (laughs) Well, uh, she was, in fact... um, uh, on the shortlist to play Susan. Yes. And uh, oh. the reason... She, uh, I don't think she was ever offered the role, but she took herself out of consideration because she didn't want to be tied down to a year contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and indeed, the contract she was offered for this um, was 13 episodes, including this final episode of this story, um, mm-hmm. with a possible extension for another 12 I won't yeah. say which of those options was taken up to to give you some uh sense of apprehension mm-hmm. yeah. um but yeah, look i it's kind of weird when I came to fandom in the mid nineties there were lots of things in Doctor Who I liked that other people seemed not to um mm-hmm. so for instance, time and the Rani hey. but, um <laughs> Dodo was someone I didn't see until I was about um 12 or 13 i think and i um i made a friend who had a lot of uh sort of dubbed videotapes from the UK and he made me copies of things um and i i've always i've always quite liked her she's got a chirpiness that susan um, and Vicky didn't always have and I've been very glad to see that that reappraisal in fandom because for the longest mm. time um, Dodo was a punchline and that's that's no more evident than her treatment in the 1990s novels such as The Man in the Velvet oh, Mask God, yeah. and Who Killed Kennedy mm. and anyone who does listen to Flight, Flight Through Entirety knows that we do have an irreverent streak but there there is a line between irreverence and kicking
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it comes i generally i feel anyway like it comes from a a place of love rather than yes uh, sort of a nasty element
3: yeah yeah and i i feel what problems do arise with dodo in the TV show are uh, mainly due to the way she's written, certainly rather than yeah. the way she's played. And mm, having seen yeah. having seen and read interviews with Jackie Lane, um, she's clearly a very considered person and she spent a lot of time considering her role on Doctor Who and her mm. eventual departure from it. Um and yeah, it's funny when she when she did pass last week. A friend of mine who's a Doctor Who fan, but I don't think he listens to podcasts generally. Um, he uh, we're in lockdown uh, here in Sydney, so he's at home and he's just got a BritBox subscription and he's watching uh, right. lots of classic Doctor Who. And he he just sent me a text saying, "Oh, did you hear that Jackie Lane has passed away?" I said, "Yes, indeed." He's like, mm. he's like, I don't know what it is, but I I've, I've just I just really like her. And yeah. and he and he's like, he's like, I don't know if I like her more than other Hartnell companions, but there's just something. And I I said, well, do you think it's that? You know, she never came back to do an audio. She's never read an audio book. She's never done a DVD commentary. Yeah. She's done a few conventions. Um. She apparently quite liked, a- appearing live and and actually meeting the fans. Mm. You know, she didn't do loads of them, but she did enough to get the sense, oh. You know, we quite she quite enjoys that. Uh and then of course she did that wonderful thing on the fiftieth anniversary where she's like, Oh no, I'm not coming down to the studio and finding out what uh finding out what Harry Styles thinks of Doctor Who
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think she obviously uh dodged a bullet there because uh that her appearance, it has to be said, was one of the the few highlights of that particular show, the after show party. Mm, I made the mistake of looking it up on uh, on YouTube a few months back and it's every bit as cringe worthy as I <laughs> remember. It's, oh oh I you- mean, the, just the joy of seeing Stephen Moffat with his head in his hands just being just thinking, Oh god, what am I doing here? And uh, oh it's painful. Oh this sounds I mean remarkable. they start referring to the actors as their Their characters' names as well.
0: Come on, please. So I've never seen this because when when the fiftieth was happening, I was living in the Middle East. So it was all I could do Mm -hmm. to watch The Day of the Doctor very very slowly as it buffered every thirty seconds. (laughs) Um, But I, I, so I'm I'm kind of conflicted. Part of me wants to cavort. Gamble, skip and jump merrily towards YouTube right now with a big bag of popcorn. And part of me thinks, no, don't watch that. That would be sad. I think
1: it probably inhabits the same territory as the Star Wars Holiday Special. It has that mm. kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's so bad, you can't help but watch right. it. Uh,
0: mm. yeah. I, so yeah. make of that what you will. I will probably watch that then. So just to maybe dart back into the story because I, I feel Yeet. like we should wrap up talking about the french bit um, <laughs> um and there isn't really too much to say you know you've 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 got these various strands of plotting and, and treachery going on um you've got uh the the doctor as we've said kind of unexplainedly absent so that william Hartnell can have you know a week at camber sands smoking roll-ups or whatever it is he does on his downtime <laughs> um and then you you get that f- that kind of stunning awful final montage of at least so on the on the recon i watched there were these all these yeah. line drawings of impolation hanging yeah. immolation flogging murder and beheading um oh, as uh, to horrific. depict the massacre i don't know how that would have been depicted in the show i don't Mm. you know we'll we'll probably never know sadly unless indiana morris is going to surprise everyone by having found another story which seems unlikely um so yeah i that that again that
3: was a real kind of gut punch for Mm. me those um, those images you see, according to production documentation were the images used and it was done in a similar oh, way. Wow uh, oh, um, really. what we what we lose in the recon quite understandably is that those images um, were mixed with characters such as uh, the Admiral de Coligny and Nicholas and Gaston being killed on screen.
0: Oh uh, because right. we just see their faces kind of superimposed uh, over <sighs> the line drawings on yeah. the recon. Yeah, so Yeah,
3: so yeah, so the yeah. recon has kind of attempted to follow Patty Russell's mm-hmm. um Vision. direction yeah. as close as possible. Yeah. Uh now the actual killing of the Admiral De Coligny was, was quite brutal. Um Oh yeah, yeah,
1: I've been reading about it. Not,
3: yeah, not he pleasant. yeah. He was disemboweled, thrown naked out the second story window, and then beheaded in the street. Mm. I mean we've
0: all had some bad times at freshers week but that that's yes, so sound... Yes, right. Holy hell. So I'm guessing yeah. they they sort of probably pulled back from that to a certain extent when they were
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, it, it. yeah. Yeah, it was probably man steps in front of him with sword yeah. back goes pokey in front pokey. of camera. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> scream fade to black. Um yeah, but I, I find those images very effective, because it happens as the Doctor and Steven leave. And, you know, using images like that was probably a practical consideration of, we, we can't afford the extras, and obviously we can't show many, many people being stabbed on screen. But as a viewer, I kind of get the impression of, we've been living in it for the last three episodes, now it's history. And this yeah. is how we look at history. And we might go to a museum and look at that image and go, oh, isn't that sad? But Patty Russell saying to it, no, look at it and hear the screams.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. This,
3: is, this is something terrible that happened. Um, and I, for me, that's why that sequence is so effective. And it goes on for, I think, a good minute. You know, it's not just 10 seconds. And it's not just they leave in the TARDIS and then we cut to inside the TARDIS with Stephen remonstrating uh, with the Doctor. It's like, no, we're going to sit with this. Um, Yeah, I think maybe... I guess
1: they have to try and convey some of the just the, the sheer horrificness of it because it it spread, didn't it, from Paris out across France. Mm, yes, that's right. And I think it lasted for about three days in Paris and then uh, uh, the, the estimates are uh, just mind-boggling of how many people died anywhere from sort of three thousand to ten thousand and then they're talking about twenty thousand na- nationally and it's just horrendous Ooh.
0: I mean televisionly it makes me think of the end of blackadder goes forth where again you had a slightly longer mm-hmm. than may have been necessary uh kind yeah. of slow motion montage of everyone sort of charging heroically towards their inevitable death but obviously you didn't see anyone die in blackadder but when i was i don't know 10 or 12 whenever that was on tv that again mm-hmm. was really really powerful stuff and i wonder if this yeah. obviously you've only known these characters for you know three and a half weeks previously but um just just the the protracted slow measured unrelenting depiction of the horrors must have been um, so 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 powerful so affecting and I return to my earlier theme of what has Doctor Who become at this point it's just death Mm. death 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 death
3: (laughs) yeah yeah I, I talk a fair bit on Flight Through Entirety about what I sort of go yeah this is good television but is it good Doctor Who and I think mm. things that aren't necessarily good Doctor Who, but are good television, can be done occasionally in the series. And I yeah. do put The Caves of Androzani in that category.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd agree.
3: Yeah, I always say Caves of Androzani is the best Blake 7 story ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, but And this is another one of those examples of, you know what, we couldn't do this every month, but at this stage, we're kind of doing this every month. <laughs> And, yeah. Well, yeah.
1: unfortunately, uh yeah. going back to your previous example, no one told Eric Saywood to uh, to stop doing it every month. But, mm, <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. Yeah, there we go. That's that's for later. <laughs> oh. Um But yeah, and then kind of uh Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis come along and give us something very different. Yeah. Um But that being said, even though we've just had kind of four months of death and Daleks and Trojans and Death mm-hmm. and um, you know, spam, spam, bacon, eggs, and death. <laughs> what about death? You missed out, death. I think that's,
1: I think that's the episode title sorted. <laughs>
3: I don't like death. Well, you can have my death. Um, anyway, but yeah, I think just the realism of this and its refusal to say that. This is a you know this is a sci-fi thing and this is a big blot. It's like no, this is pure mm. unvarnished history, and yeah. um, we're we're gonna give this to you. And I suppose it pays respect to what happened. Mm, um, yeah. it's a bit like uh, the Whittaker era had to be very careful when they were doing Rosa not to downplay the seriousness of the historical event. And I think that's a story that succeeds in that regard. And similarly yeah. has the Doctor say, no, we just have to be swept along with history in this. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor does this here as well. And it brings up an interesting point as to whether not changing history is a moral law or a physical law. And John Lucarotti has sort of given us both in the, in, his, in his tenure back in the Aztecs... Mm -hmm. The Doctor's imploring Barbara not to change history. It's implied to be a physical law. Um, Even though she tried, she couldn't change anything except she helped one person. And here, it's implied that the Doctor has helped Anne, and Stephen has helped Anne, of course. But Mm -hmm. the implication from the Doctor at the end of the story is that not changing history is a moral law. He yeah. he says to Stephen very sadly, You know I can't change the course of history, but it's more in the way of I might want to and it's given us a terrible shock, but it's not something I'm allowed to do, rather yeah, than I shouldn't. Yeah. We absolutely can't do this. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's fascinating because obviously John Lucarotti wrote both stories you've just mentioned that have these two different interpretations of the limitations of meddling with the timelines. But do we think John Lucarotti wrote that bit of the massacre or was that was that a little bit of tosh that snuck in towards the end?
3: Mm. Um.
1: Well, if you'd asked Donald Tosh, he probably would have said yes. He's <laughs> <laughs> rather fond of taking credit for, well, anything really. Yes.
0: I hear he got the third penalty last night. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs>
1: um. Too soon, too soon. <laughs> Not by the time this goes out, but yeah. Yeah, too soon.
3: You know, I th- I think you may be onto something there because, um, again in Lucarotti's novelization, and you know, Lucarotti's novelization is written with the benefit of twenty years of hindsight and bitterness, but um, in that novelization, the Doctor does explicitly help um the Ch- uh, the Chaplais get away from Paris. Okay. Which you know, undoubtedly, is changing history, or is it? You know. Yeah. And, of course, he tries to stop the assassination of Coligny, which would be changing history. Um, Yeah, so it's hard to say exactly whose vision that is. If we do say it's Tosh's vision, it shows the difference between, say, David Whittaker and Donald Tosh, because David Whittaker Mm. is the person who came up with the idea that if you do change something in history, history will do something else to change it back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's... It, it's sort of a what if scenario. It's a sliding doors thing of what would John Lucarotti's the massacre have looked like on TV.
0: Yeah. It's um it's something, you know, it's it's a big question mark at the heart of Doctor Who whether, whether you can change time but shouldn't or whether you simply can't. And I think it it really needs some kind of I don't know late-period David Tennant story involving, <laughs> us, I don't know, a, a <laughs> fixed point just to pluck something at random out of the ether to really make sense of that and, and help us all understand how, what's been mm. going on all this time. or, or not. That's a useful phrase, fixed point, you say. <laughs> fixed point, <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, because, you know, I have my own personal theory of, of Doctor Who that every single time the TARDIS lands that is reality but no other stories' chronology or timeline has any bearing anymore because uh, every story exists in isolation, which is why you can have so many different mm-hmm. kinds of future kinds of technology, mm-hmm. kinds of politics, you know wh- whatever. Um, and so changing time is is a, a, a very different thing and I think the problem, we're uncovering already, and we're into, what, year year three and a bit of the show uh, that's been going for 60 years, is that every writer comes to it with a slightly different approach to the underlying quantum mechanics of what they're trying to do. So you get things, and, you know, generally it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter, and if anyone seriously loses sleep over inconsistencies like how does changing time work, then they need to probably get out more, take up a hobby, <laughs> get some fresh air, meet some friends, you know, just find other mm. things to worry about, things that are, dare I say, more important than a kid's TV show. But um, at the same time, you do kind of start to see all these different, contrasting, and competing creative inputs um, tugging mm. the show this way and that way. And, and, it's it's having a really hard time settling down into a sensible alien infused base under siege show that it will eventually reach and become in about two years' time. But at the moment it's still way up in the air because everyone's coming at it with very different understandings of how things work and what can be done with the format. Sorry, mm. that was a that was a very long sentence there. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I think what it does, it throws up that variety that we've really enjoyed. Uh, over the the past couple of seasons, and you never really quite know what you're going to get from from story to story. So, you know, there's swings and roundabouts when it comes to,
3: to that side
1: of it.
2: Mm.
3: On, on that thing of, you know, having so many uh, writers uh, involved and production teams, I think that's something the new series loses slightly. And um, there's a, a wonderful Twitter account called The Herald of Creation who has been doing oh, these yes. daily polls... Um, yeah. Will they to, ever end? Will they ever end? <laughs> and uh, 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 probably by the time this comes out, they'll have finally ended. But at the moment, he's he's pitting like everything he can yeah. against Ascension yeah. of the Cybermen because he doesn't yeah. have uh, a good place for it on his list. And I almost understand his logic, but I don't quite grasp it. But I, <laughs> I think he's doing an amazing job and a wonderful service oh, for fandom.
1: Yeah, I, I take part Yeah, oh, me,
3: Yeah, me too, every day. But um, you know, he's talked about in these polls there seems to be a classic series bias um, Mm. more often than not and look I have to agree with that because like both of you um, you know I've watched a fair bit of the classic well I've watched all of the classic series actually come to think of it Um, but because it's the one I grew up with I'm kind of more fond of it and I have sort of interrogated that it's like well is the new series better and it's like in many ways, empirically, it is better. But <laughs> I think one of the strengths the classic series has is you do have all those different voices. Yeah. Whereas the new series, you know, Russell T Davies, Stephen Mulford, Chris Chibnall rewrite everything to some extent, mm. and it does mean you get a greater level of consistency, but it also means you lose that variety. Yeah. And that even means you you kind of lose the different tone of things like Timelash or the Twin Dilemma or the Sensorites. And you kind of go, oh okay, but you know, that means we get a higher level of overall quality. It's like, yes, but it's a little bit less textured, and possibly a little bit less interesting. And I think that's why the classic series will always win out for me because mm-hmm. there's nothing else in the show quite like the massacre. Yeah. And I think even, even with its shortcomings and it's kind of being a bit hard to follow who people are. Um that that's why it's so high up on my list because it's so unique mm-hmm. and so uncompromising, which is funny when you consider how compromised the script was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: So um, I suppose then that we should maybe skip on to the the sort of closing, I guess, ten minute coda, where Stephen yeah. says he's leaving. The TARDIS lands. Is enough? Stephen he's off. leaves. The Doctor in with his yeah, hair. Uh, oh, takes <laughs> his hair with him flounces <laughs> out with the hair structure intact. Um and then the doctor is on his own for about ninety seconds, in which time he mm. completely psychologically collapses. He's lonely, he can't possibly cope anymore. Um, mm. you know, the doors are still open. He could call Stephen back. He's been on his own for, you know, seventeen seconds and he's thinking, Oh maybe I'll just go home. Oh oh it's all it's all terrible. Um and then quite conveniently, uh mm-hmm, Uh, Dodo comes charging (laughs) into the TARDIS and we've got our new companion. Mm. It's a bit, I don't know, clumsy, rushed, shoehorned, what do we think?
1: She doesn't seem particularly um, surprised to find that the TARDIS is massive inside compared to the exterior, which I suppose is a, a refreshing change from the usual, oh my god, it's bigger on the inside. I think i you know going back to what brendan was saying i think she's a quite a sort of plucky and likable character for all that you get to really as much as you can get to know someone over like a a two-minute segment of a a story um but yeah it's perhaps um a bit shoehorned putting it mildly i
0: think with dodo there's a there's a twinkle in her eyes and you get the sense that in between takes the actress is around the back of the studio having cigarettes and <laughs> <laughs> you know and she's not going to be and I, I don't mean this necessarily in a negative way but quite so po-faced and earnest as some of the other companions she she manages to convey in two lines of dialogue and one kind of glance yeah. she manages mm-hmm. to convey that there's a bit of bit of an edge to her bit of Mm, yeah. A bit of something different, and I think that is. Um, a bit of spunk, as I, I, I think they say in Australia. I was trying to avoid the spunk,
2: um, <laughs> which, which isn't always easy to That's do. That's always routine. say, um,
0: but, Sorry, I'll, I'll clean up a bit. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, when I thought it was only mine, I wasn't quite so worried. But, uh, um, you might want to cut that bit, I don't know. Oh no, that's thinking, staying in. I, going <laughs> I have in been, in. been tied down for a
3: very long time. I know, but yeah. you've got yeah. your hands in manacles. You've been very How patient. Done that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but who wants to hear about my spooky moment? <gasps> yes. Oh yes, yes, please. So there's, uh, and again in the in the recon, um, possibly it was very different on TV, but I, I doubt it. Um, you get the shot of the TARDIS on what um, we now know to be Wimbledon Common. Um, and mm-hmm. you see Dodo running towards it. And I just had this kind of like feeling like someone walking on my grave, kind of shivery, ooh, what if Ian and Barbara popped up? And I don't know oh. where that thought came from or why it occurred to me. And of course, it didn't happen. But 10 minutes after the episode, when I was researching yeah. the story on Wikipedia... Ian and Barbara were due to record a little cameo at that moment. No. Now, either that's something I would have read in a Peter Haining book in the 80s Uh and forgot all about. It's just kind of lodged in your brain somewhere. Which I don't... I can't believe that's true. But otherwise, how (laughs) could I possibly have made that association or got that kind of foreshadowing of something that... Oh,
3: How lovely would that ah. have been? Yeah, I, but, I I gather the reason it didn't happen was one of them was doing a play. Uh-huh. I can't I can't remember which, but I gather that's the reason it didn't happen. But yeah, it right. it was in the script. Oh wow! You know, if we can get them, I think they mm. I, I think they did just plump for two extras walking by and reacting to the uh-huh. TARDIS disappearing. Um, but yeah, it, it was in the script and written as um, it, they would they would just ad lib some dialogue. Yeah. So I, uh, seemed- know, I say it was in the script, but it was just, you know, Ian and Barbara are there, react. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ian,
0: Ian does something leaden in a in a suit and tie, and Barbara immediately starts rending her cardigan in two as the TARDIS. <laughs> I imagine it would have gone very much like that. Was it. I, I'm assuming that didn't make it into the novelization, Brendan.
3: No, no, it didn't. Um, the novelization uh, doesn't actually feature. That scene at all. Oh. Um, Steve, Stephen never storms out. He does remonstrate with the Doctor slightly, but sees his point of view more easily. Um, the novel actually has a framing device of the Doctor being called up in front of the Time Lords. Oh, wow. uh, to, ju- oh. to justify his actions, which at the time JNT um, was actually against. Uh, he he sort of said, no, 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 the Time Lords weren't established at this point in the show.
1: Who are these Time Lords you speak of? Yeah,
3: exactly. But then Luca Rotti explained, it's like, well, this is to sort of get around the discrepancies. And to because I'm doing this so differently from the TV version, this is to explain, the Doctor to explain what happened and mm-hmm. whether he was duplicate or not. And that's when j agreed. But in the epilogue, the doctor talks about how that led to him meeting Dodo. Oh. Okay. He d- doesn't go into a great deal of detail, but basically he mm. justifies what he did by saying, this family did survive. So, yeah, Lucarotti okay. is absolutely prefiguring uh, the fires of Pompeii wow. there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. but oh, um, crazy. Yeah, I... I wonder, if you didn't read it somewhere, Ian, if you were just thinking along the same lines as Donald Tosh and going, oh, wow, (laughs) wouldn't this be a lovely thing? (laughs) It's like um, Stephen Moffat talks about writing twice upon a time and he didn't intend to have Pearl Mackie in the script when he was writing it, but he got up to the scene where Bill appears and he writes, you know, the door opens and... And he just sort of sat back and he's like, Who is the person I want to see come through that door? And he and just mm-hmm. something in his brain went, Pearl Mackie. And so he wrote it and then called her agent and said, Is she free on these dates?
0: <laughs> oh wow. Yeah.
3: So yeah, oh. you know, it's it's certainly not out of the question that you have just thought along parallel lines, especially seeing as, you know, we've been talking about what we would have done as the script editor with Katerina and Anne. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, no, that that gave me quite the wiggins for a good five minutes. I was, I was, ooh, ooh, like, ooh. Um, but you know, enough about my psychological problems. <laughs> 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 well,
1: unless we got anything else to say about this story, shall we? Uh, shall we rate it?
3: Uh, I've got one thing that I realise we haven't oh, yeah. haven't said, and that is mm. to praise Joan Young, who plays Catherine de Medici in Episodes 3 oh, and 4. yeah. Yeah. Um, because arguably... The Queen Mother. Yeah, arguably she's the main villain of the story. Yeah. Because she's the one who comes to Marshal Tavan and says, okay, yeah. how about, and hear me out here, instead of a targeted list of a few Huguenots we want to kill, just to save time, all of them? Just spitballing yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's just... It's a lot easier if you just kill them. Yeah, she's got such chilling menace, mm. but out of a motivation of what she sees as protecting her family line, and protecting yeah. the soul of France, as it were. You know, she is a religious fanatic just played with such subtlety, and I really like her.
1: Because of course she's terrified that now that you've got a Huguenot married into the family, that they'll end up worming their way in and doing something unspeakable to become the, uh, the king. But, uh, yeah, she's, she's great in this. I think you, what you were saying there about her being this sort of evil character, I just had this image from what you were talking about because flashing back to time in the Rani, I just imagine her saying, leave the Catholics, <laughs> it's the Huguenots I want. <laughs> Do you think that would work? Not really. Absolutely. I'm not sure she'd carry off those red leather boots in quite the same way as Kate O'Mara. Oh, know. no, she would have been fabulous in them. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You've been known to do a bit of cross-play in your time, young Brendan.
3: You? I have. What yeah, um, about I, doing uh, Catherine yeah. and Medici? Or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah? Yeah, I think I'd look good in a bonnet.
1: Well, I mean, I'm still remembering your Zoe from... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, From the mind robber. It's still etched on my brain. Yeah, I, t-
3: I tell you what, I had that catsuit custom made and it's got wow. it's gotten quite a few uses. I have been on I have been at a dance party on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. wearing that and it got quite a few compliments. So yeah, it was a good investment. Yeah,
1: not many people can pull that off, you know, no, Brandon. No. Yeah.
3: People tried. It was that kind of dance party. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: And on that note, I think we really should score this story, and I am going to come to Brendan first. What
3: would you give this out of 10? I, I give this one a 10 out of 10. Oh, wow. It's one of my top partners. Okay. Straight in there. Straight in.
1: Ian, Ian, I feel like we're going to uh, see two very different uh, you, opinions, potentially.
0: You do, do you? Do you want me to go now? Do, on, do you want it, sir? Do you want it now? <laughs> so, Ooh, as I've m- as I've said a number of times, I'm it, it's a missing story. You can either watch one kind of recon or you can watch the other. Don't do what I did. <laughs> and- <laughs> try and <laughs> cobble it all together because it makes no sense. Yeah. Um yeah. it was it was it was very hard to follow. Uh, it's very wordy. It was a lot of people mumbling in cold stone corridors. But for all that, it was um historically uh obviously incredibly accurate. Well, not incredibly accurate, you know, but yeah accurate to a point um it treated the um the subject with a, a degree, a degree of, respect. of respect you had a very mm. confident uh bit of writing i was going to say screenplay but that is pretentious um mm. and the, you know everyone was obviously playing it totally straight um giving mm. it giving it uh, a lot of a lot of respect. I think I'm going to give this an eight purely because I know it's a better story than than my first experience gave yeah. me so I'm, yeah. I'm confident that it is a belter that I'm just a bit mm-hmm. thick and didn't quite appreciate on my first viewing well on that note uh, of being a bit thick
1: I am gonna say it's not one that I was necessarily looking forward to that much my first experience experience of it was probably the the um the recon the loose cannon recon because i went through a phase of just being obsessed with the missing episodes and maybe i just wasn't in the right frame of mind for it or you know a bit too dim to really understand what was going on but it didn't really leave that much of an impression on me maybe because i'd just gone through dalek's master Plan, which i absolutely adore you so, kept that you know, quiet still, uh, <laughs> still i know I've, I've not mentioned it once uh, <laughs> So uh, I think this rewatch has uh, certainly upped it, in my estimation. I am gonna give it uh, a seven. So I think overall, it's it's come out relatively yeah. well. Hmm. We'll we'll probably get a lot of hate mail from uh, from Hartnell fanatics who say we should all give it a ten. But uh, I think <laughs> I think we all I think we all enjoyed it. I think we did. Yes. Anywho. Enough of that. Let's get some listener feedback.
2: I've got mail.
1: As is customary, our first bit of feedback is some audio feedback from our dear friend Ben Schneider down in Indiana.
3: You know, guys, it is popular in Doctor Who fan circles to say that the worst episode cliffhanger of all time is Death to the Daleks Part 3, where they casually walk up to a checkered floor pattern. Stop! Do do not move! And, you know but for my money the most boring episode cliffhanger ever ever has got to be massacre episode 2 some old guy looks all thoughtful up in uh, to the air and he says almost in a uh, whisper that he will
1: be known as the sea beggar uh okay wow
3: the sea beggar huh can't wait to tune in next week for that <sighs> I miss Mavic chin, also
1: Magic chin. Thank you, Ben, and uh, I have got some Twitter feedback from a listener of ours called Morning Time, and his Twitter handle is at morning time twenty twenty and they say when you set something in France, you could end up with some offensive accents, but luckily here the only accent that Jars arrives in the last few minutes <laughs> harsh. <laughs> <but that>? uh, <laughs> I bought the Target novel when I was 11 or 12 and loved it even without any alien involvement. (laughs) Bought the audio and same. The only thing that would improve the story is if the wonderful Ian Chesterton was still travelling with the Doctor. Am I being trolled? Uh, Am I being trolled? I I, I don't know what you mean.
0: (laughs) What the F?
1: (laughs) Ah Ian, Ian was great. Everyone loves Ian, (laughs) top bloke frankly. Thank you, Morning Time 2020. Uh, Ian?
0: I would like to announce my resignation from this podcast <laughs> <laughs> in response to that. I, I, I didn't get on with Ian Chesterton, I'll, I'll be honest. You never mentioned well, it. no. I, I found him a little bit pompous and insufferable, don't you know? Ah, nah. um, he stimulated my phagocytes. Well, wow. anyway, in terms of <laughs> dirty <laughs> bugger, <laughs> oh, he was ever such a naughty. Um, so, I have heard from our very dear friend Dave from the Doctor Who show, Mister David Kitchen. Hello, Dave. Hello, Hope David. Well. Um, he Hello, says, Dave. He says whilst this could be dismissed as just a lot of talking in rooms, it is very good talking in rooms. Hartnell as both the abbot and in his final speech as the doctor, not his final speech ever as the doctor, I hasten to add just his final speech <laughs> in this story as the doctor. Um, Thanks for clarifying, to, yeah, point, of, point of business there. Um, shows how strong he was as an actor and surely ends any debate that he was feeble and sick at this time. And... Mm-hmm. And thank you, David. That does brilliantly remind me of something that we didn't really talk about, which is that when Hartnell was portraying the Abbot, um, as has been commented on before, there were no billy fluffs, there was no mm, no yeah. air of mm, oh, I can't humming, remember what and what no doing. And, he yeah. absolutely nailed it, which is another little mm. fascinating thing you can take away from this story it was his portrayal of the yeah. Doctor, and it's. It, you know, attendant fluffs. Was that deliberate or or not? We've Mm. we've got Mm. room to think. Um, Now, I'm going to forget who this one's from, so I've got to go back a screen. It's from Ross from Gallifrey's Most Wanted. He says, this is my favourite missing story. Oh, I love the duelling storylines of Stephen and the Doctor. I want to see Hartnell as the Abbot of Ambrose. I do love the historical. Pretty strong stuff there. But uh, you've got to admire someone who knows their own mind and knows their own love of the show. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that.
1: Why? I'm sure he would have given it a 10 out of 10 as well. (laughs) Uh, Before we go to Brendan, we've got another bit of audio feedback, this time from another friend of the show, Mr Andy Moore. So let's hear what he's got to say.
2: Settle down, settle down. Ah, so good of you to join us, Mr Cockworm. Quick as you can, please. Today's topic is the massacre of St Bartholomew's Eve. For those of you who haven't done the weeding, and yes, I am indeed looking at you, Mr Martin, the massacre of St Bartholomew's Eve is a gripping historical tale laced with a growing sense of impending doom. But perhaps the most interesting thing about the massacre... ...of Saint Bartholomew's Eve... ...are the two questions it perennially throws up. Firstly, is this really suitable subject material for a Doctor Who adventure? And secondly, this story, perhaps more than any other... ...causes us to ponder the second biggest what-if casting question in Doctor Who history. Namely, what if it were John Noakes and Shep who had been cast as space pilot Stephen Taylor... rather and Pieter Purves? Of course, I'm sure I don't need to remind you that the first biggest is, of course, what if the Doctor had been played by Michael Bentine's potty time? Just pause for a second, if you will, and consider the implications this decision could have had on the story, the massacre. Of St Bartholomew's Eve. And how the phrase... Now then, Bradley Massacre. never appears in the story, fish Legend, Lime, that time.
1: And thank you, Andy. Most creative. Um, let's head over to Brendan.
3: So my feedback comes from uh, Philip Edney, of course one of the hosts of The Sirens of Audio, the Big Finish-focused podcast by uh, Philip and Dwayne. And G'day. he says, uh, The massacre proves how good an actor William Hartnell was and that so much of his ums and ahs that people think is him forgetting his lines is actually put on for the character. Philip Ian, I've got him on Skype on the screen here. He is throwing his hands up in the air in triumph. Uh, Back to Philip. He is word perfect as the Abbot of Amboise and so chilling. Peter Purvis also shines as Stephen. Peter Purvis is more regularly the lead of the show than any other companion before or since. A real tragedy that we have nothing of this story aside from a few stills. Um, look, I can't argue with any of that. Um, Hartnell, as the Abbot of Amboise, Hartnell had wanted to play another part in the show for some time. He had suggested a story called The Son of Doctor Who, where he oh, yes, would play the that. Doctor's evil son um, without the <laughs> wig, etc. And Donald Tosh and John Wells said, no, that's a bit silly, but did keep in mind that he wanted to play another part. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's where the Abbot of Amboise came from. Paddy Russell, um, the director, recalls that she was warned that Hartnell was difficult. But what she actually found was that he was deeply passionate about the role and wanted to get it right. So during rehearsal, she was actually very strict with him on the Abbot and would stop him and say, no, that's a doctor thing. That's a doctor thing you're doing. Yeah. You need. You should do this instead. And apparently Hartnell was incredibly receptive to that because as much as he wanted to get the doctor right, he wanted to prove he could do other things. I think at this mm-hmm. point he was afraid of being typecast. And he's like, well, I can't yeah. go off and do something else because this is taking up all mm-hmm. my time. I'll do something else within the show. Um, yeah. As for the point about Peter Burvis, absolutely, as Hartnell's health was allegedly ailing, um... Mm-hmm. Peter was given more a share of the show to do and according to Peter Purvis himself Hartnell may not necessarily have been glad of that but was grateful uh, to yeah. Peter for ca- for carrying part of the show as well and to Peter's credit the way he talks about it is seems to be he never sort of let that go to his head he didn't think he was the star of the show William Hartnell was the star of the show, and he was helping him in whatever fashion. And if that meant taking on more of a leading role, that was also good for him as an actor. Um, Finally, with Peter getting so much to do in this story, that was an active decision by Donald Tosh to make up for Galaxy 4.
1: Oh, I see. Now,
3: I really like Galaxy 4, but of course, Peter Purvis has said for ages he's not too fond of it, because why does an astronaut get trapped in an airlock... (laughs) is his whole rationale there. He's like, I'm meant to be this intelligence sort of scientifically driven character from the future. And so Donald Tosh gives him a role where it not only highlights Stephen's intelligence, but Stephen's loyalty to the doctor because all the way through Mm -hmm. he's saying, no, 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 the doctor's got a plan. The doctor's got a plan. Uh, So yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Philip there. It is a tragedy that we don't even have telly snaps of this because John Wiles mm. just wasn't that keen on getting telesnaps that's why we don't have them he was saving money and he's like yeah, nah okay. don't need to buy these we're not going to need them and look you can't blame him for that any more than you can blame the BBC for junking the tapes it was something television was seen as ephemeral Yeah, and it's it's such a shame that this one was seen as ephemeral
1: Absolutely, we are very fortunate we have the soundtrack. One thing that that. really
0: leapt out at me, this is fast becoming my favourite thing with uh, Stephen Taylor, is that at at random points in er, any given story, (laughs) he'll just shout out one word in his usual, really, he's he's getting increasingly cross with each story. (laughs) And there's my (laughs) favourite bit in Dalek's Master Plan is where he just bellows the word, DIRECTIONAL! for no real reason um, and in this one right at the end when he hears Dodo's last name he just kind of screws his face up and, and goes Chaplet and it's oh it's lovely I just I just love his little staccato bursts of rage oh wonderful
1: so is he growing on you Ian because I did get the impression you felt I, he was uh, going to be as annoying as, as he's Mr. Well, well he's,
0: he's annoying but in different ways and um I yeah, he is. He is actually quite annoying, isn't he?
3: <laughs>
1: Sorry, Peter, if you're listening. Uh,
3: <laughs> I I I love you, Peter. I think you're wonderful. <laughs> I liked you in Blue Peter. Oh yes, all that hair. Yeah. <laughs> Cascading. I'm an authority, you know. <laughs>
1: Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you all for your feedback. It's really great to hear from you guys. And if you want to get in touch, you can hear all the various ways over our end credits. So it just leaves us to thank the wonderful Brendan Jones for coming on and being such a great guest.
3: Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ian, for having me. And thank you, dear listener. Before you go, would you like to give a little plug to what you've got going on? Yes, so um uh, thank you over on flight through entirety. Uh, we have just wrapped up Matt Smith's first series, so series five. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have about two hundred and thirteen episodes covering an unearthly child right through to a Christmas carol. Uh, we will be back later this year with series six. Hey. Uh, related to that, we have our James Bond podcast, Bondfinger. Which, um, obviously, with No Time to Die being constantly delayed, we have had no James Bond to discuss (laughs) for quite some time. Uh, So we've been doing related programs such as The Avengers, The Prisoner, The Champions. I love The Avengers. Uh, Yes, so you can find that at uh, bondfinger.com, flightthroughentireity.com for the first one. Uh, We have a flashcast for the current era called Jodie into Terror. Continuing our tradition of naming our Doctor Who podcasts after episodes of The Chase. Um, (laughs) Let's
1: not forget Brandy Bongos. Brandy
3: Bongos over on YouTube, my intermittently updated (laughs) YouTube channel. (laughs) And the reason that hasn't been updated is because I've been helping my parents move house for several months. Um, But that should be returning soon at time of recording so by the time this comes out there should be some new stuff up there and i do things like doctor who in 10 seconds and uh, say something nice where i say nice things about uh every individual episode of doctor who it's going to be a little while before i'm up to the massacre as it happens because um mm-hmm. uh the ratings for ep one were eight million uh, sinking to around six million for the other episodes this was only the third uh. time uh doctor who had dropped out of the top 100 Again, I think, like Ian, people were asking, where are the Daleks? Uh, mm-hmm. And finally, I'm uh, on terms of social media, I'm most active on Twitter, where you can find me, at Brandy Bongos.
1: How marvellous. Thank you so much for coming on and being such a great guest. And uh, we'll be back next time for a trip to the Ark. I think it's the Ark. Please tell me it's the Ark. It's the Ark. Is it the Ark? It's yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So until next time, I was
3: Mark. I was Ian. And I was Brendan (laughs) (laughs) Chapelet.
1: If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at mailbagofrassilon at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at time and space pod. And you can also find us on Facebook. If you want to leave some audio feedback, there is a link in the show notes. You can use your phone or your computer. And leave up to 60 seconds of feedback. Or if you're listening via the Anchor website, you can click on the message button and leave your audio. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you to Momo Tempo for providing our theme music. So until next time. I was Mark. I was Ian.
3: And I was Brendan Chapelet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you need to do a Dodo crossplay now. But is it going to be the uh, the orange and black ensemble oh, or yeah, the yeah. black and white
0: quarters? No?
3: Yep, yeah. Celestial Toymaker in um in uh in football shorts with red circles on. I've already, I've already thought that one out. Good
0: lord! <laughs> it, wow. You better be careful, or we'll all be able to see the bell of doom. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an image. <laughs> uh, I, I do, I do beg your pardon. I just, I couldn't resist that one.
3: <laughs> Absolutely not! Absolutely not! You, you, mm. yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> mm, mm
1: that might have to go in as a uh, an easter egg at the end <laughs> <laughs>